Aguini Ushla, a Fubble Jay, Kurim Falcher, Rev Gokdina, a Tavalyaha and Shah, Marshinger, Clown Jay, Vincher Jay, Fubble Jay. Good evening, one and all. Those who are here present in St. Flannan's Cathedral, Killaloo in the County of Clare, for our third in the series of Mandatum, the Command of Christ talks. May I acknowledge the presence of Scarif Bay FM recording the talk this evening, which will be broadcast on Scarif Bay FM over the weekend, but indeed will be so professionally distributed within our own diocese and beyond. Our talks and the series is in conjunction with the National Church of Ireland Mind Matters. It's interesting that here I am standing at the lectern of the eagle, the symbol of Saint John, the word reaching the height and the depth. Tonight, in a, a very special way, it is a, a privilege indeed for me personally with my colleagues who are here in the cathedral. We have Dr. Marjorie Stokes, we have Glenn and Ed, but also to Reverend Stephen who is sharing this with us, myself and so many indeed who offer support in various ways. Our phone line is open and receptive. I've been getting phone calls from near and far at 0864113989 for any supportive inquiries. Tonight it is a pleasure to be able to welcome Mr. Larry DeClaire, a psychotherapist, supervisor and facilitator, and as former project leader of Bedford Row Family Project in Limerick. Larry has supported families and children affected by imprisonment for over 30 years. I know Larry and he has been so supportive to myself and so many, for example, the Haven Hub, being able to facilitate that and the network that we have developed to find a home within Bedford Row. And too locally, Larry has helped us encouragingly in so many and varied ways. As a, a musician, as a member of our local congregations, as a, a friend and a member of the great community of music centred around Castle Connell near and far. It would be so true, everyone, that Larry passionately believes that the best way to protect children that are in distress due to the effects of imprisonment is to recognise strengths, kindness, compassion and wisdom that abounds in their families and to enable them to flower to their fullest degree. Barry is the creator and author of the website The Natural World of Child Protection and it may be found at www.larrydeclare.ie. Tonight, Larry, on behalf of all of us, welcome to St. Flannan's Cathedral. Thank you. 
Thanks, Paul. I was hoping you wouldn't mention the musician bit, you know. <laughs> Thanks very much for turning out tonight and anyone listening in. And uh, I'd just like to say this is the first time I've been in this cathedral, even though I live very near it, but I'm humbled, I feel very privileged to be here to be asked to give a talk in such a historic place as St. Flannan's Cathedral. Um, like most cathedrals, I think, and, you know, of, of this ancient, these ancient cathedrals, I often feel the history has kind of seeped into the walls and into the windows and into the pews and everything. And, uh, I, you know, you could imagine all the thousands of sermons, like, given here over many hundreds of years. Um, here's now me giving a talk. It's a bit awesome, really, in, in, in all those, following all those people, you know, bishops and everything who may have talked here over many years. Um, as, as Paul was mentioning, and as you've seen from the leaflet, I work in Bedford Row Family Project, an organisation based in Limerick. We support families affected by imprisonment, as, as um, Paul says, with a particular focus on protecting children. And um, we also work with people who have served time themselves. We, we give them some time and we, we uh, uh, welcome them also into our project. And we started in 1999 just a bit of history, you know, and we grew from there. And I, it began in the simplest way possible, that is, by inviting people to have refreshments, like, you know, tea and coffee and biscuits and maybe some play materials for their children before they visited their loved ones in prison or after they came out, and that was a, kind of at the gate of Limerick Prison. And the project is very much an, kind of an owner-occupy kind of a project, in the way that the people who matter most are involved in a very intimate and a real way. And the resultant work, we often think, is a kind of a synergy of the felt experience of imprisonment, which is not very pleasant, and the professional boundaries that are necessary to ensure that good and effective work is done. So it's a kind of a mixture of the two. And as I said, I've been involved with the project since 1999 and I've been working there since 2007. So I kind of grew up with the project as well. And I like to think that the kettle, and as it was the subsequent copper that comes from the kettle, or that comes from the boiling water that comes from the kettle, it's a kind of a metaphor, really, for simplicity and encounter, and a reminder to all of us that as we get more professional and more qualified and we get more funding and everything, we shouldn't lose sight of our most successful attribute, and that's the wisdom and the common sense of ordinary people. Now, Bedford Row was initiated by the Mercy Sisters and the Franciscan Friars who wished to support a cohort of people who, whose needs are frequently misunderstood by society at large and who are largely forgotten. That is, until they cause trouble and then everyone is in their case, so they're not forgotten at all, they're, they're highlighted. But by and large, many of the children who grow up in such families are forgotten and they're kind of hidden. And because of our historic connection with the Friars and the Mercy Sisters. We remain a faith-based Christian organisation, though of course we welcome people of any faith and of no faith, whatever, but, but our, our essential grounding is in, is in the Christian message. And my talk this evening, if I may, will be maybe two parts. Like firstly, how we kind of deepen our understanding of spirituality to affect emotional healing. And secondly, you know, how spirituality can be of practical use in an organisation set up to help people.
Now, during our work, as you can imagine, we come into contact quite a lot with suffering, emotional suffering, and it's a universal part of the human condition. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how, in a faith-based context, it can be alleviated. Because it's true to say that we all experience emotional pain while living our lives. And it's undoubtedly true as well that some experience more suffering than others, or at other times in our life, like if we're in a war zone, or if we're in a family where there's a violent alcoholic, or we have a teenage child who might be involved in high-risk behaviours or criminality or whatever, or drug or if we have a loved one who's taken before their time, our suffering is heightened at those times. And I suppose one of our great life's projects is to avoid suffering if we can. So we do a lot of things to avoid suffering. And I would say that our primary goal 10,000 years ago, when we moved from being hunter-gatherers, supposedly anyway from what I've read, to farming, was to make our food supply more secure. So that would avoid the suffering that's caused by the scarcity of food and put some certainty into that. And this, that move 10,000 years ago, I suppose if it led eventually to the vast consumer and nowadays largely city-dominated society that we have today. And many might contend that the demands of living in that vast consumer society that we all live in, dominated by the pressure to succeed or to accumulate material goods and our hierarchical structures and systems and our attendant competition and comparing each other, comparing us with each other, that brings us more emotional suffering and pain than anything that the hunter-gatherers had to endure. But I suppose that's a debate for another day because I'm talking about here about alleviating suffering as well and of easing the pain that is an inevitable part of living. And there are some ways we can do that. First, we can go down the material path, buy a new car, a new clothes, retail therapy as it's called, buy something nice for ourselves, go on a holiday. We could take mood-altering substances, legal or illegal, take to the drink or whatever. Or we can go down the clinical model, check ourselves into a psychiatric hospital if we're feeling that distressed and hand over our healing to a medical practitioner. Um, so, so we can do loads of different things, including we can also visit pain on others if we want to alleviate our own suffering. And we have loads of examples of that, and probably the most starkest example would be something like slavery, where some humans bought and sold other humans so that they could have a nice, happier, wealthier lifestyle at the expense of the other humans. Now, another interesting way of alleviating suffering is to share that suffering with others. And that's manifest in our old saying, a problem shared is a problem halved. And this is an interesting one because it implies that relationship and relationship alone has a healing effect on us. And it's evident in our Irish language, as we say, is far beogán than gwael, na moran than carhanas, which means a little relationship is better than lots of charity. And that brings me back to Bedford Row that I came here to talk about tonight as well, with whom I have been associated, as I said, since 1999, and I worked there since 2007. And one of the reasons why I've stayed so long in that project, or how I find it so attractive, is that relationship has primary place. Not just relationship with people who come in looking for help, who we call our focus group, 
but also among ourselves, knowing as we do that if we model good relationship among ourselves, it increases or augments the messages that we are imparting to others. A bit like parents, if you like, if any of you are parents, you know, that, you know, modeling what we desire in our children among our own relationship. When we do that, our messages increase greatly in power. Now, if we've been brought up in the Christian tradition, as I have, we will see that the importance of relationship runs like a thread through the New Testament. And I'm sure you have better things to do with your time than be reading about modern developments in neuroscience and what's going on in our brain and how our brain affects our body and how our brain and our body combine to keep us healthy and that sort of thing and mentally alert and aware of, of the world around us and that. But because it's part of my work as a psychotherapist, I do seminars and courses and short courses and workshops and I read extensively about it. And the more I read about neuroscience, modern neuroscience, the more I notice that most of the great discoveries that we're discovering now, the men in white coats are discovering, like they've been known to us for thousands of years. All the ancient texts, most notably the New Testament, which is the only ancient text that I'm kind of familiar with, and I'm not even too familiar with that, to be honest, but, but, but they all stress that love and creativity, companionship, compassion, and empathy for others, and patience and forgiveness, all in the context of relationship, are good for us. They make us feel better. They add to our contentment and contribute to our emotional, mental, and spiritual health. And that meanness and vindictiveness and abuse of power and revenge and all those kinds of things, they lead, they, they lead to the opposite, exactly what it says in, in the Gospel. And I can't resist mentioning the old Chinese saying that I love, he who plots revenge must dig two graves. <laughs> I think that, that, that always struck me as being very true, you know. Now, I'm, I didn't come here to complain about neuroscience because I'm a great fan of modern neuroscience, but I do see that the credibility of its messages or its findings, you know, when it comes to easing emotional healing or contributing to our better lives, is, in, is enhanced greatly by the fact that the findings have been discovered in hundreds of laboratories and universities and similar establishments throughout the world by, you know, well-looked-after scientists using hugely expensive material, all underpinned by modern scientific work, you know. And they offer us very similar conclusions to what we would have got if we just adhered to the messages of the Gospel. Or indeed, read stories that have been handed down to us for generations, like, for example, of the story of the goose that lays the golden egg, or the Emperor's New Clothes, I'm sure you're familiar with those, or even Cinderella. All these legends and fables and that, like, like other ancient texts, they contain messages that are not too far removed from what neuroscience is discovering. Now, getting back to spirituality, because I said this talk is about spirituality, so I haven't drifted too far away, I hope. One interesting facet of our lives, and living good lives, is inspiration. And I'm going to say a few words about that now, because it's very relevant in the Bedford Row experience. Because the word inspired, as I'm sure you all know, has a root in spirit. And from, I'd, I'd like to just say a few words about uh, an attempt, or my attempts maybe perhaps to understand spirituality and how, how, as I mentioned already, it can be of practical use in organizations 
that are set up to heal emotional suffering in others. So, how do we define spirituality? Well, before we define it, I would say that the majority of people would probably claim that spirituality is a good thing to have an appreciation of, and that the lack of it means that we are somewhat deprived. Perhaps the opposite of spirituality, it could be cynicism or materialism, rampant materialism, banality or even boredom or even predictability. And most people would agree, I think, that spirituality is something that moves us. And in that sense, it is unlikely that we can be proactively spiritual all the time. It would probably be too much for us emotionally. I'm always intrigued by the fact that I might be moved by a song sung in a particular way, but not by the same song in another way by another singer. Or why am I moved, or why am I moved by a, a gripping film, you know, or falling in love with somebody, or even falling in love with an idea, the wonder of childbirth, or the sense of excitement that we feel when we are creating something. And the wonder of childbirth is very relevant to me at the moment because I became a grandfather there on last Saturday, just two days ago, so I'm full of that wonder at the moment. <laughs> That's quite spiritual in its own way. And recent knowledge gained about our brain through neuroscience, through scanning and all these very, very sophisticated scientific equipment that might explain the how of those things. But even if we dig deep, the why is still a mystery. Now, there may be a danger that we think the more we reach our full potential, the more spiritual we'll be. Like, that is, we might think that if people don't have food and shelter, or their other, or their other basic needs met, they won't have much time for spirituality. Yet there are people who are homeless and whose basic needs are not met, who are very, very spiritual. And there are also people, as I know, who go to prison, and they may have suffered trauma in their childhood, as we might say, their spirit is knocked out of them. They might be homeless and hopeless, chronically addicted and involved in criminality, like the people we are privileged to meet every day in Bedford Row. And you might think they might have a struggle to have a sense of the spiritual, but in fact, there are many people who end up in prison who come across to me as intensely spiritual as well. And on the other hand, this is where the mystery comes in, there are undoubtedly people who appear to have done very well in life, who are successful in the mainstream meaning of the term, who appear happy, who do not seem to have many worries and troubles and who might have reached their full potential, if you like, but they seem to have kind of part spirituality or it doesn't seem to be that important. They've accommodated it. You know, so we all do that sometimes. We kind of park and accommodate spirituality and we, uh, we have to say we express it maybe in, a, in maybe in a bland kind of a way. But if, I think another way, if we consider... One thing that's useful is to consider words that are related to spirituality and we may get a clue to maybe not what it is but what it means to us in our day-to-day -day life. And I said already about being inspired, that's a root of, that in the spirit and, you know, moved kind of implies emotionality and sometimes inspiration. We might be inspired to do something that we might not have thought like was within our capability. And to aspire, which is similar to inspire, is to aim to do something that's different or new. You know, I aspire to do this or that. And the word for a structure on the top of a church, aspire, I think there's more of a tower in this cathedral, but however, that kind of aspire must have a, 
a root in spirit. It directs our prayers up to heaven. And uh, it's probably some connection to the word spiritual. Or, you know, if you're following a team and they can have a good team spirit, and if they have a good team spirit, there's some of the team is greater than their individual parts, you know. Or we see a child who is very energetic. We say that he or she has spirit, you know. And I can't resist this, but spirits are also drinks that give us a right good old kick, you know. And it's interesting that those drinks are manufactured by distilling or refining, like their close relatives, paraffin and petrol and that. And this means that we think of the word spirit as having some kind of purity. And finally, well, maybe not finally, you might think of a lot more, but from my point of view, we're informed that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And in the Christian faith, the Holy Spirit makes things happen and isn't just a kind of an add-on to the Father and the Son in the Blessed Trinity. So, just moving on now, after all that, about our about words, we, we just, maybe another way to get a handle on spirituality is to ask what kind of behaviours show the world that I'm spiritual or show me that I'm spiritual. And traditionally, when I was growing up in Ireland, spirituality was expressed by perhaps observing the sacraments and saying the rosary at night, being pure, there's that word again, not sinning, you know, being humble, giving pennies to children who were hungry in Africa. We used to call them black babies and making sacrifices, giving up things for Lent. These were all things that we had kind of associated with spirituality. And nowadays that has changed somewhat. We have a much broader understanding it can be associated with our, our emotional selves, our mentality or our physicality, you know, and how we feel, our love, who we keep relationships, sexuality, creativity, joy, and similar characteristics. So for me, and I suppose getting back to Bedford Row, I think that spirituality is evident in kind of creation and growth and joy in relationships, in all their wonderful and different manifestations and also independent thought, perhaps, or responsibility even, and energy. And it can transport us to perhaps a different level of awareness or kind of happiness. It's something that most of us feel has a kind of a transcendent quality and cannot be grasped fully. And maybe, maybe we assume that it's unique to humans. So if we don't know what spirituality is, we find it difficult to define. We kind of know what it does. If spirituality is the cause, the effect is movement, the making things happen bit. And yet, paradoxically, the effect of spirituality, it could be argued, is also to slow down so we can appreciate beauty and silence and darkness, see benefits in solitude and reflection. And this is where the organisation bit comes in, actually, and the practical use, funnily enough. Because most organisations are concerned one could say, are obsessed with doing, 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 but spirituality is concerned with being. Now, I'm just going to speak a little bit about vagueness. <laughs> because anything that's vague is usually unclear. You know, that's another way of saying. And, pe- and humans generally don't like lack of clarity. So any description or plan or process that's vague it can be kind of manipulated to suit whatever goal the person, being vague, wants to achieve. So it might be argued that all sorts of leaders throughout the world for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, they've used 
established, going back to the pharaohs or even before it, they've used established religion to manipulate spirituality and to channel people into thinking a particular way so they can build vast empires rich in material wealth and power, even going to war to protect them, but lacking what many might consider to be the true spirituality as manifest in the messages of the gospel and in other ancient texts that are revered by many people. But looking at it from another perspective, there can be great strength in something being vague or indefinable or even a little nebulous in that we, if we have good intention and good integrity, we can be creative about how to use it. And in being creative, and getting back to singing again, if we write a poem or sing a song or we paint a work of art or something, produce something for, from our imagination, if we play, play with others, or we pray, all of which can be described as spiritual activities, we'd be at risk of doing something kind of bland and predictable if we pinned down what spirituality was or if we defined it too narrowly. Because whatever it is, the muse, as it is called by some people, moves us, as you too might say, I don't know whether you're familiar with the work of you too or not, it moves us in mysterious ways, not in definable ways, you know. In fact, painting by numbers or songs written to formula, they run the risk of being considered by most people to be kind of bland and unimaginative. Now, reverting again to Bedford Row, which I came here to talk about tonight as well, orienting our work so that we build unconditional relationships with, very, with people in a lot of distress, like meeting them where they're at, not where we want them to be, will have an element, a fairly large element, in fact, of spirituality. That is, we can, we, the, we say a practitioner, I a practitioner, and the person in distress, we can be moved by the process of encounter. And it can be full of mystery too. And this is where, in my mind anyway, the practicality, the practical use of spirituality comes in. I'm sure that many practitioners like me who work with families in distress, and I'm sure people who work in the Haven Hub and everything, we often wonder why some people have an inner strength to reach out for help and others don't. Or if they do reach out, they reach out in such a way, perhaps a very kind of demanding way or an angry or something, that the person offering to, offering to help is kind of put off, you know. In other words, in reaching out, sometimes people can sabotage their own chances of getting help and other people don't. So, you know, there's a bit of a mystery there. <coughs> Excuse me. And in my experience, and I say this, I have been this practitioner, and sometimes I am this practitioner, we can be judgmental. We're being naturally, we are naturally drawn to the person who we feel is kind of going places, making progress by some sort of standard that we set, and who, despite having many problems, has spirit. There's that word again. And that's probably because his, his spirit is moving some sort of a spirit in me you know, reflecting back to me and reflecting back to our organisation what we'd like for ourselves. Sometimes, of course, if he has too much spirit, he shows us up and we're not that drawn to him. But it is undoubtedly true that people who are making progress that can be observed and measured shows our organisation in a good light, induces a free good factor, and that in turn raises our spirit and raises our energy and gives us all energy. But if we accept that spirituality is important, and I'm one of those people who feel that it is not only important, but it's necessary for our survival, we will accept 
that it is in everybody, not just those who are making prog progress that can be observed or measured. And by allowing it to flourish and grow, or to emerge, as we say, it will show itself to us. And its emergence might not be in the way we expect, but it will be there. Now, in my understanding of spirituality, I mentioned creation, growth, relationship, responsibility, and energy in those. It's probably relationship that is the most important in organisations and in the practical use. We will know that when people get together and do things for each other, and do things with each other, like the mehel in the Irish tradition, there is a sense of mutual nurture, camaraderie and hope. And in an organisation, this can be infectious. Problems don't seem as big where there is hope and a sense of people caring for each other, or where there is a good spirit. And this spirit can be encouraged and affirmed by honouring people's gifts, what they do well, welcoming the unexpected and unpredictable, even though it might contain some discomfort. So, to finally, spirituality isn't something that no one can see and no one can feel or touch or hear. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's an integral part of us on which hope, faith, inspiration, compassion, wisdom, empathy, and many other positive life-affirming things can be built, can be built on spirituality. And if we try and define it against what it should be, against some predictable yardstick that we have in our menu of behaviours, it might lose its mysteriousness and indeed its sense of wonder. It would probably result in less excitement and reduced sense of joy. And I'm sure you'd never hear you two singing, she moves in predictable ways. If you have any questions or Paul, do you want to? Yeah. Apparently, you said a little relationship is better than last. Oh. It's a lovely Irish vocation that you quoted. If we could think of many organisations, we are good at dispensing charity, but not so wholesome at building relationships. And I wonder. Post-COVID, um, have we immersed ourselves in extending so much charity that we've forgotten about the relationship? Or where do you think we are in the life of vocational world? Where do you think I, we are in Ireland? Or in the general in the world? Yeah. <laughs> it's a good question, though, because I don't think we're any different, really. I don't think we change much as the years go on or the decades go on and Covid was a bit of an aberration you know but, but I think that I think that charity has its place and it's a great thing to have I think more and more organisations that were set up as charitable organisations are kind of looking at the justice side of things and the relationship side of it as well which is a good thing but I think that's your question as well has relevance in the in the the last or the end, towards the end of my talk, I was just saying there, because I often notice it, that when people get a bit uppity, you know, it can be more difficult to be charitable, you know, and they, they get angry with us or something because they, they we're not delivering what, what they might want, you know, and I, th I think that that's a good test in an organisation if we can maintain 
empathy and maintain compassion and not let it go out the window when somebody gets angry, you know. And I think that can sometimes happen and it's a natural human reaction. We don't really want people coming in angry all the time. But I think that that's, it's, I think it has a lot of relevance in our institutions, you know, that's, that's my own. Yeah. And I'm thinking about the individual responding to where people are mm. and getting into the right position to be available and useful to people when they come in that situation. Yeah. Could you say something about how that is for yourself in practice? Yeah, I, I think the, the, the practice or the, the practice element of that is listening, you know, and actively listening. And um, and not not really expecting people uh, like to achieve something, you, you know, because and it has to be said that our whole of my education, because I've been to school and college and everything, and I'm sure most people who are involved in mainstream activity, you know, all of us have been have set achievement as a kind of a, a gold standard. You know, you have to get so many honours, you have to get in and you compete with others, you compare, and eventually you achieve and you get your job and you go to the interview and you're compared with everybody else. So, so I think listening, and it requires a lot of, uh, I suppose, energy and a, a good bit of training and that, but when you say, ask about meeting people where they're at, I think pe allowing people to offer their views in an uncensored way, first of all, there's great learning in it for the practitioner like myself, but also people, when they hear themselves saying something that, that is, you know, be angry or something, you know, and they're not afraid to say it. I think that's what I mean really by meeting people where they're at. It's very easy to meet people where they're at if, as I said, they're going places, you know, and they have got their, they have those resources anyway. But um, a lot of people don't have those resources. They struggle to, to find those resources, you know. So that's really what I mean by that. I hope I'm answering your question all right. But I, the, the word listening comes to me when I, the, for those kind of situations, you know. Yeah. You used the lovely reference to me when you said, the spirit is not powerful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and from a, a Christ like perspective, mm. take the character of Jesus, he was able to revive people who had. True, yeah, yeah. And I mean, yourself, Bedford Row, mm. the ethos of Bedford Row, but that's a great challenge to revive the people that the spirit is not Yeah, that's a good point. It is true, yeah, yeah. And I suppose, yeah, actually, Jesus kind of met people where they were at as well, you know. In that sense, not, not that any of us are trying to replicate it, but I mean, you know, that, that was a kind of a... It's, it's like the, he didn't expect them, to, as far as I know, I don't, I'm not an expert or anything about it, but he didn't expect them to achieve something, you know, when, when they came into his, whatever, orbit, you know, or uh, his, yeah. You'll be better to answer that, Paul, than me. <laughs> I have uh, recently got a, a number of phone calls, Larry, and inquiries from parents and guardians not just within our own region or area or diocese, but far uh, distant places. 
who are working with something that they find very, very difficult. And what it is, is parents who have a son or daughter, predominantly sons, who have served a long-term sentence for horrible crimes, ranging in everything. And someone who has served 10 to 15 years in prison and is due to be released. The parents themselves uh, would like to welcome them home, would like to have them in their area, instead of going to distant places whereby they are, of course, being in touch with the Angarashiakana or authorities or Interpol or the police or whatever. And of course, this, the parents are working with trying to welcome them of fear, shame, hurt, acknowledging um, themselves the crimes, but yet they love their child, irrespective of their, their ages. And of course, it's a classic example, Larry, of individuals and people who have, as you said, the, the spirit knocked out of them, who do want to have it revived. Uh, in a very special way tonight, Larry, may I ask you, I suppose in our conclusion, and people might have a, another question or two, but particularly tonight, to a number who are sharing this talk with us through the medium of webcam, would you be able to share with them something that you feel could be comforting or hopeful or give them encouragement that might help them to take a little step forward to revive their spirit, particularly worried about a family member who is due to be released from prison or who is released from prison. Yeah, thanks, Paul. And of course, as you can imagine, working in Bedford Row, we would have come across those situations many, many, many times over the years. And I think the first thing is don't try not to be isolated. There are other people who are also going through the same thing. Now, I don't know whether there are other Bedford Rows in other parts of the country or not, but certainly somebody that you just described would be very welcome in Bedford Row and would find a sense of belonging there because it's a hugely anxious time, can be very anxious. Somebody who spends a long time in prison, um, it's, it's, it, it, there is an element of the life sentence about it that because, and particularly nowadays with Google and everything, no, nothing, is, nothing is hidden anymore from anyone. So, so it's a very difficult situation no matter how many matter how, how much you look at it, but I would say the first thing is to try not to be isolated and try and link in with other people in a, in a nurturing environment where, where people can, can feel a sense of belonging. And, I, you know, I don't really have an answer to that, but that is, that is the first step on, on being understood and how this how very unique pain because not very many people in the country will experience that, or in the world even like, but how that very unique pain is, is, is kind of ameliorated or is eased a bit, is to try and link in with other people 
and try and, and, and in, in an organization like Bedford Row, or, you know, if, if there are other places that, that, that can be accommodated. And that is, like when you were saying, the, uh, the first lines in my talk tonight was that the Mercy Sisters and the Franciscans set up an organization to work with people who are largely forgotten. And those that the pain of that is largely forgotten. It's not known really by, by society. The vilification that happens in the media and the, the hurtful things that can be bandied around. I, th I think that that was the, one of the reasons in 1999 that, that that was the spark that set up Bedford Row in the first place. So, so that's what I would say there. I hope that answers your question all right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're not a neuroscientist, are you? <laughs> Before I worked in Bedford Row, I worked, I did street work with young people who were getting into trouble with the law, and uh, that was in the 90s, so there was nothing about child protection that time. So young people of 14, 15 might go to an adult prison. So I knew quite a lot of young men, some young women as well, but mostly young men who went to prison, who actually had, who actually needed uh, nurture. They needed medical assessment and that wasn't available. They needed psychological assessment and they should not have gone to prison. I know, you know, I just say that from my heart, you know, that so so when you go to prison, you kind of you get into, it's a very boring place, you know, you, if you've done these like films like, you know, Shawshank Redemption Desire, but film, prison can be very boring. You go in, you do your time and you do the routine every day, you get up in the morning, you do what you want, and then you're, then you're released and you know, sort of the prison experience, this is, I've never been to prison, thanks be to God, but from talking to people who have been, it kind of gets into you. And then, like everything else, it's familiar, you know, but I know loads and loads of people who had, who, 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 who didn't kind of, who couldn't keep up, you know, with school, who couldn't keep up with the fast pace that, 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 that's, that's demanded of us in the modern industrial world, as I said, and, and who just, dropped out of school and that's the first that's the first step you know to drop out of mainstream institution and maybe not be welcome in a sports club because they're sort of bizarre behavior you know so but prison wasn't was not the answer for them you know so i'd agree totally but i don't know i haven't read anything about that in the neuroscience kind of side of things but definitely there's an awful lot of people in prison who really shouldn't be there at all they should have got some sort of psychological help or psychotherapeutic help, you know, and uh, and you know the other thing is prisons have been around. Like, do they work? You know, prisons have been around for hundreds, well, as we know them now, you know, for hundreds of years. There was probably different kind of prisons hundreds of years ago, but, but and it doesn't really affect much change in people. You know, 
It doesn't really, I don't think. Sometimes it does. There are people who go to prison, and I know people who, and they've, they've changed dramatically, and prison has been a good for them, a good experience for them. You know, I wouldn't deny that. There have been some people that said, geez, I'm never coming in here again. I'm going to start myself out, and they go to education and everything. But by and large, it, 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 it doesn't really, it hasn't really uh, had the effect that perhaps people feel it should have, you know. May I remind us that next Tuesday, the 21st of March, we welcome physically here the internationally renowned speaker, Bernard Lynch. Bernard is an out gay Irish-born Roman Catholic priest, author and activist who has worked for the, the rights of LGBTQ IA plus people for almost 50 years. He founded the first AIDS ministry in New York City and was drafted onto the mayor of New York's uh, task force on AIDS. Bernard will be here in St. Flannan's Cathedral next Tuesday the 21st of March at 7.30 p.m. Tonight we just acknowledge and thank Mr. Larry DeClare for his presence with us. Thank you so much to the community and congregation of St. Flannan's Cathedral for the, the use of the cathedral, for the Church of Ireland Mind Matters, our diocesan secretary, Lorna Sharp, over in Cune, Heather Pope, our own Bishop Michael Burroughs, and indeed the support of so many people. We appreciate very much tonight, Larry, your presence uh, uh, amongst us. It offers hope, consolation, a step forward, and especially through the medium of Scarif Bay FM, and Patricia and Jim, for their kindness with the recordings. I think we will be able to reach and support so many. Tonight, Larry, we say thank you there is an old Irish expression which is Tomitic Shu Lesh and Vajan Villa, August Nadini Nefa, Avi Ekchungak and Christ, Gakanak Calvary. Sometimes we're like the holy people, the angels and the saints ascending the hill of Calvary. Through you, Larry, through Bedford Row, your work as a psychotherapist, but your own person. In a sense, light is shone in dark places it enables us to take a step forward. And on behalf of my colleagues here tonight, Marjorie, Glenn and Ed, may we say thank you for the bottom of our hearts from being here tonight. And let's bow our heads just for a moment in silent prayer in this week of Shachtana Negelve and indeed St. Patrick's Weekend. Ahir, Bach, August, Spirit, Nave. Amen. May the Lord grant us a quiet night and a peaceful end. God bless everybody and safe journey home. <laughs>